Last week we saw the clearing of the temple and we saw how it triggered the hostility of the Jewish leaders and we're told that he, after that he went out to the surrounding Judean countryside around the region of uh, Jerusalem for a while and he taught and many more people began to follow him but he knew that this growing following was being noticed by the Pharisees and so he decided to head back to Galilee for a while. See, his time had not yet come. He uses that term a few times. The time had not yet come for him to go to the cross. There would be three more Passover feasts to come before all things were ready in the Father's plan. In the meantime, Jesus is very strategic. He often withdraws from the sight or the view of the Pharisees in Jerusalem until he is ready to actually go and give himself over into their hands. Now, to get from Judea, sorry, to get to Galilee from Judea, you travel north. Uh, To get there, you'd have to go through Samaria. You can see right there in the middle unless you wanted to take the longer route up the east side of the Jordan uh, through Gentile territory, uh, most Jews preferred to take that direct route through Samaria. Travel between Judea and Galilee would have been quite common because there was a large community of Jews living in Galilee. But you would do it as quickly as possible to avoid any kind of interaction with the Samaritans because the Jews hated the Samaritans. It was on this journey, uh, back earlier in chapter 4, that Jesus has this surprising encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and we'll be looking at that uh, later in our Friday, Friday feed studies. Or I should say, she encountered him In this encounter, there's again a stark contrast that we saw last week between the Jews in Jerusalem who rejected him in their unbelief and the Samaritans who believed the words of the woman's testimony. So again, it's it's the most unlikely people who believe. Now this is important background to what happens in our passage in Galilee. Not just that they believe, but the basis on which they believe. It won't be the first time that we see Jesus showing love and grace to Samaritans, holding up Samaritans as a model of people who have true faith over and against his own people, the Jews, who are in unbelief. In the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were dogs. They were unbelievers. They'd forfeited their right to be part of the covenant community because centuries earlier they'd intermarried with Gentiles and they set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So it was shocking. It was offensive that Jesus treated Samaritans as God's people. But see, he understood the Scriptures. He knew they were, they were the northern tribes of Israel who one day 
would be reunited with their brothers and sisters in the south. So Jesus goes through Samaria and he was, he was probably heading for Capernaum, which he'd made his home base in Galilee. Cana would have been his last stop before the day-long journey from Cana to Capernaum. Uh, Jesus probably had relatives in Cana, which is why he would have been invited to the wedding that took place there back in chapter 2. But word had spread of his arrival in Galilee and this official couldn't wait. He made the day-long journey south to meet Jesus in Cana. Now, who was this man? We don't know his identity, but the word that's used for him, translated official, is actually a royal title. Uh, it was a title that was used by the Jewish rulers of that region before the Romans took over. Uh, this was the area that Herod, King Herod, was uh, in charge of. So this man is very high up. He's probably from the courts of King Herod himself. But we need to try to imagine what it was like for people at this time. Today, if a family member is seriously ill, what do we do? We rush them to the hospital. We call an ambulance. And they're treated for their condition in a very short time. We get upset, don't we, if the ambulance takes more than 10 minutes to get to us because we're so used to that instant help and care. Well, there were no such services available then. There was only basic, very basic herbal medicine and a lot of prayer. Someone like this man who would have been very wealthy, he would have had access to the best care available but clearly it wasn't enough. He knew that Jesus was his only hope. But he must leave his dying son, travel for a full day, probably eight, seven, eight hours, without a guarantee that when he gets to Cana that Jesus will actually be there. You can't just send through a text, say, I'm on my way. He has no way of knowing how his son is going back in Capernaum. He doesn't know that if he gets to Cana and if he finds Jesus, that he'll be able to convince Jesus to come. And even then, it'll be another day's journey back home. So at least two days travelling and another day in Cana looking for Jesus. By the time he spoke to Jesus, it was 1pm. So he would have had to wait the rest of the day before returning home the next morning. No phone, no email updates on his son. All he could do was trust God that he had done the right thing to go and find Jesus. Now, in light of this man's desperate situation, we might feel tempted... We might feel tempted to feel that Jesus' response lacked compassion. It feels like 
he's using this man's desperate predicament as a teaching point. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the you here is plural. So he's not just speaking to the man, he's speaking to the the ones whom this man represented, the Jewish political and religious leaders. Remember what had recently happened in Jerusalem. They demanded of him a sign to prove that he was who he was, to prove that he had the authority to clear the temple. And by sign, they meant miracle, something obviously supernatural that can only be explained by God's power. So, even though what Jesus says is true, is he being insensitive to the pressing need at hand, a child who's about to die? Now, of course, for Jesus, there's no such thing as a pressing need. In the sense of the pressure of time to get something done before it's too late. And we'll see that even more starkly uh, in a couple of weeks when he stays away and lets his good friend Lazarus die rather than going straight away and healing him while he's still alive. He wasn't concerned that if he didn't act immediately, things would go from bad to worse and become irretrievably hopeless. That's the way we so often operate, isn't it? Rather, he knew that Lazarus' death was ultimately for the greater glory of God, so he could wait and trust his father. The same dynamic is at play here. Not only does he know that the man's son will be healed, but he wants to do something greater than simply healing a sick boy. He wants to give this man and his household something much more precious than physical health. He wants to give them saving faith. So he gives the man what he asks for, but not in the way that the man wants it to happen. The man wants him to come down. That's simply a phrase referring to the fact that Galilee is up in the hill country, Capernaum is down at sea level on the shore of Galilee, so you would literally go down. In his thinking, Jesus needs to come to the same location as his son in order to heal him, because that's how all the other miracle workers operated. And maybe that's how he just sees Jesus at this point, a miracle worker who has the power to fix his problem. Jesus knows the nature, that this is the nature of this man's belief because of the words he uses. Unless you see signs and wonders. Now, I've already pointed out how in John's Gospel especially, Jesus' works are called signs because they point to the deeper reality of who he really is. His signs have revealed him so far as the true Jacob, the one who fulfils all of God's promises, as the Lord who comes to purify the temple and to restore true worship through his death and resurrection, as the true temple, the one to whom we may come and be in his Father's house. 
But here Jesus adds another word, wonders. This is the only time this word is used in John and it means simply wonder or miracle, something unexplainable, something that's out of the ordinary, something that can't be explained by natural causes. The only other time we see Jesus using this word in all of the Gospels is when he's warning his disciples against false Christs who will perform signs and wonders with the aim of trying to lead astray the elect. A faith based on signs and wonders is a faith that's focused on the miracle itself and it requires the ongoing performing of miracles for it to be sustained. And sadly, that's the way a lot of people view Jesus today, as the one who can give you what you feel you need in the here and now. As long as he delivers for you, you believe in him, but if he doesn't, you move on to the next option to see if that works. And over the years I've seen lots of people treat Jesus that way. Their faith of sorts was superficial, was based on an experience or based on a perceived answer to prayer, but it was short-lived. Those people are like the seed in Jesus' parable that's scattered on the rocky soil and the weedy soil. They receive the word initially, but then hardship comes or a better, more attractive offer comes and their superficial faith withers and dies because it has no roots. It's it's a faith in a Jesus of our own making, not faith in the real Jesus who refuses to be conformed to our desires and our wants. So unless you see signs and wonders, he says, you will not believe. We could read that in two ways. It could be a statement about ability or a statement about intent. And Jesus means the second. In other words, he's not saying you you don't have the ability to believe so you need signs and wonders in order for you to be able to believe. Now it is true that in and of ourselves we are not able to believe Faith doesn't originate in ourselves. It's a gift of God. It must be produced from outside by the work of the Holy Spirit. But signs and wonders don't produce true faith. It's not that some people are more experience-oriented and need something more tangible in order to believe. No, he's not saying that. He's saying you are not willing to believe. You will not believe unless God acts in the way that you want through signs and wonders. It's a matter of the will, of unbelief, refusing to believe God unless he complies with our expectations. It's a little ironic, I I feel, uh, that Christians who are more conservative who might be labelled more traditional, who focus on uh, the simple ordinary, ordinary things like prayer, reading, teaching the Bible, singing, communion, 
are sometimes accused by our more charismatic brothers and sisters of limiting God, putting God in a box by expecting him just to work through these ordinary means, not being open to spectacular, spontaneous things like miracles and healings and spiritual encounters with God. It's ironic because we can just as much put God in a box if we expect that he has to move in signs and wonders and miracles and supernatural experiences. To think that unless those things happen, he's not really present among us. If we come to church expecting a miracle or a breakthrough or a mystical experience and we leave disappointed that we didn't get it, then we have a faith like this man. We're a consumer. It's a faith based on signs and wonders, what we think Jesus can give us instead of on Jesus himself. Just last week in Manila, the Philippines, an estimated two million people came out to see the Black Nazarene It's a statue of Jesus uh, that's thought to have special healing powers. People jostle one another to try to touch it or at least touch the carriage on which it's transported. 15,000 security and medical personnel were employed to protect the statue, to prevent riots and to deal with all the injuries and hospitalisations that happened in the pressing crowd as people were trying to climb onto the carriage. The government blocks mobile phone signals and there's a no-fly zone over the city to prevent terrorist attacks. Is this an expression of faith in Jesus or in signs and wonders? It's pretty obvious to me what what it is. So what is it that produces true faith? What is it that we should be looking for when we come to Jesus wanting an assurance that he is worthy of our trust? What is it that Jesus is teaching this man by saying these words in the face of his desperate need to see his son get better? Well, it's the lesson that was modelled by the Samaritans. We're told many more believed because of his word. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, the recounting of a miraculous thing, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. So their faith initially was in the testimony that Jesus miraculously knew all about her But then that uh, superficial faith gave way to a more robust, a more true faith when they themselves met Jesus and heard his word. Their faith came by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It's the word of God, God speaking his life-giving word the word that brought the entire universe into existence, the word that has become flesh and dwelt among us in the person of the Son. It's his word that produces a faith that will stand firm like gold refined in the fire. 
So see how Jesus in these words is might initially seem uncaring is in his kindness he's leading this man to that kind of faith. A faith that will remain regardless of what happens to his son. It seems that uh, he's not interested in Jesus' comment about signs and wonders because for him there's only one thing that's all important. He tells Jesus, come down before my child dies. Instead, Jesus tells the man, go, your son will live. The man has a word to speak. He wants Jesus to obey and to hear his word, but Jesus has another word and the man must hear and obey that. And he must do it in faith, not by sight. All he has to go on is Jesus' promise and he must go. A whole day's journey away before finding out what will happen and whether Jesus' word is fulfilled or not. So he wanted Jesus to come and give him visible, instant results. Instead, Jesus calls him to trust him for something that he says will happen in the future. Now, as always, Jesus has chosen his words carefully because he's evoking something much bigger and much greater than this sign of a boy recovering from a life-threatening illness. Your son will live. He could have said your son will not die. He could have said your son will be healed. But he says, your son will live. He's hinting here at, well, more than hinting. He's pointing here to the great hope that the Jews had in the promise of the resurrection. When Jesus came to see his friend Lazarus, who had died, he said to Martha, your brother will rise again. To which she replied, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew that resurrection hope, that even though her brother's body was rotting in the tomb, this was not the end for him. He will rise and live again in God's kingdom. And in chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the resurrection that will happen when Jesus comes to bring the new heavens and earth and it's so much guaranteed by Jesus' own resurrection that the reality of that eternal life is brought into the present to us uh, through faith. So we live and we will live. Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just to secure the forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God. His resurrection guarantees the promise of the resurrection to eternal life of all who believe. This hope of the resurrection, that's what enables us 
to face anything in life, anything in life, because we know that no matter the outcome, whether we suffer or are in comfort, whether we live or die, we will live. And all of the hardship of of this life is simply contributing to that glory that we'll know in the resurrection. So, your son will live is a promise that will be true whether or not the boy is healed. Because through faith in Jesus, he will live regardless. Now, we can't say for sure whether the man believed Jesus' words in this big picture, long-range sense, or whether he simply believed that his son would be healed. But it doesn't matter because it was Jesus' intention that the boy would be healed and through it, not only the man but his whole household would believe. And remember, this is a royal official. His household would have been big. It would have included not just his family members but all of the servants who lived and worked there. They were all his household. Their faith must also be based on Jesus' word. When this man was telling others of what had happened, he wouldn't be able to say, Jesus came to my house, laid his hands on my son and healed him. So you too should get Jesus to come to your house and give you your miracle. No, he would have said, Jesus is greater than any miracle worker or medicine man. He didn't even have to come to my home. He simply spoke the word and I had no choice but to take his word on faith that it was his word that healed my son. So, his word can be trusted. So, what is your faith in Jesus based on? Is it on signs and wonders or is it on his word? Well, here's the way to find out. Are you pursuing experiences, miracles, wanting things to work out well all the time and for Jesus to fix your problems and keep you from suffering and hardship? Or are you pursuing his word as if your life depended on it? Because it does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus' word alone is what will make us live. We've been trained by the world and by our modern way of thinking to treat faith in the same way that we treat our once a month after church lunch. We go into the back room there to a great spread of food, smorgasbord of options, way more than we could eat. And so we take our plate and we pick and choose. We take the food that we like the best and we skip over the food that we don't like. And we end up with a plate of our own custom-made lunch, just the way we want it. A couple of years ago, when we were coming out of the COVID restrictions, we reinstated our lunch after not eating together for a few months. But because there were still restrictions, we said to people, don't bring food to share, the food will be provided. 
And someone in the church served us by preparing a meal that was enough for everyone and it was one dish, chicken, rice and veggies. Delicious and nutritious, plenty for all, but it was only one option. Now some might have been there who thought, I'm not keen on chicken, rice and veggies. I want a smorgasbord with all the flavours, all the options, but it was chicken, rice and veggies or nothing. You either ate and were satisfied or you went away still hungry. God does not serve up a smorgasbord when it comes to his word. It's Jesus or it's nothing. He gives us his word written in the scriptures, embodied in Jesus and he says to us, here it is. Here's the food, the only food that will give you life. Eat it and you will live. Don't eat it and you'll remain in death. There's no other food that can cause you to live. In fact, any other food will actually kill you. We mustn't treat God's word in and through Jesus like it's one of many dishes in the smorgasbord of ideas set out before us in the world, thinking we can take a selection of Jesus' words, that the ones that resonate personally with us, and then mix it with a selection of other words from other philosophies, ending up with a faith plate, a bit of Christianity, a bit of Buddhism, a bit of pop psychology and pop philosophy and some New Age ideas for dessert. That kind of faith is the same as the signs and wonders faith, based purely on what works for us, what makes us feel good about ourselves. When we gather as the church and all that we do revolves around the Word of Christ, reading the Word, preaching the Word, singing the Word, praying the Word, seeing the Word in the sacraments, fellowshipping around the Word. We're not putting God in a box because God tells us that it is these ordinary ways that he works. It's the normal way that he brings about faith in the true and living Jesus. Now, does that mean we discount signs and miracles and wonders? By no means. It's God's prerogative to give signs and wonders through the Holy Spirit when and where he chooses and it will always be with the goal of strengthening our faith in Jesus and his word, but it's his prerogative. He will do those things when and where he wills, not as we try to force his hand or demand that we need those things in order for us to believe. See what Paul says as he rebukes the Galatians for turning from faith in the word of Christ to something else, in their case, works of the law. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles, same word, miracles among you, 
Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This passage highlights a danger of having a faith based on signs and wonders. The Galatians had experienced these things but they had come to a place of thinking that it was their obedience to works of the law that had brought them about, the gift of the Spirit, the miracles that were happening among them. Faith in signs and wonders isn't just shallow, it will ultimately be legalistic. It depends on us doing certain things, uh, following certain formulas for prayer or worship, following the instructions of those who claim to have special gifts and abilities. And we end up saying, God is doing things among us because we've done what is required to get him to move. We've instructed God to come down and do what we want instead of listening to his command to go and believe his word. But see what Paul calls them to. Hearing with faith. Hearing what? God's word. Abraham did this. He believed God. In other words, he heard God speak the promise for him and his descendants and the great nation that would come from him. He believed the word that God spoke and believing God's word was the same as believing God. More than this, Abraham never saw in his earthly lifetime the fulfilment of that promise. The great nation, well that came generations later. The land came over 400 years later and the blessing to the nations, that came 2,000 years later through the gospel of Jesus going out to every corner of the world. So he truly believed God by faith, not by sight. He lived by faith, not by sight. God's word was enough for him so that he could have confidence in that which he did not yet see. So is God's word in Jesus sufficient for you? Of course it is, whether you believe it or not, but will you treat it as sufficient or will you look to other things? May we be a people who, like that man, go and believe Jesus' word. Galatians 6 calls the church the household of faith, those who are known as those who believe when God speaks. Let's pray.